0: Concerning the issues of life, liberty, and justice, and their impact on individuals, culture, society in America, and around the world, this is The Truth Spoken in Love with your host, Myra Jean. Myra will discuss heartfelt topics facing our nation and our world today as only Myra can. So please welcome the host of The Truth Spoken in Love, Myra Jean.
1: I'm so glad to see you, and uh, you can see me. It was my new do, but uh, the truth spoken in love. There's three things, the truth, right? I once uh, asked uh, the question, uh, who would know? Who would know the truth, okay? And uh, I knew there was the only true living God, but I didn't know him myself, I'd heard about him. So I asked him um, what the truth was in my situation. So I won't go into that right now, but the truth, as Jesus said, he's the way to the truth. He is the truth and he is the The life, the way to truth that brings you to life. Here, now, for you. For when, and this is the truth spoken in love. Can't leave that out. Who loves you? Who truly loves you? The only true God is love. So much did he love you and me that he sent his only begotten son into the world to be the Savior that we might live through him. For you see, going astray our own way from birth, not knowing The truth, not knowing who we can believe, who knows the truth that we need. We receive Jesus, the Christ, as the Lord God and Savior. And that is the only way we come into the realization of truth. That we come into the realization that God is love. He loves us with an everlasting love. And that He wants us to know Him personally. Jesus says, Before I formed you in your mother's womb, I knew you. You were in my care before you were born. But sadly, we go astray after birth, turning each one his her own way until we recognize our need to listen. That is why it is so important to listen to the only true God who is love and gives life, that we have been merely existing, Until that moment, it's a rebirth. As Jesus says, you must be born again. Your physical birth only produces physical being, but the Holy Spirit of the living God brings life in spirit and in truth. The truth spoken in love for you, God is the way the truth and the life come unto me Jesus says and I will give you peace my peace a right relationship with the Living God no other way to have that peace a right relationship with the true Living God except through His only begotten Son, Jesus their Christ. We are going to listen and share with a true story, a journey by one who has been through trials and come to the realization that there is someone who knows, who understands who cares in order to bring us to the the knowledge of the truth. And his name is Alan Clark, and he will share. And you want to go back to your beginnings? (laughs) Alan, how far back do you go?
0: Well, uh, I, I go back at uh, 80 plus years.
1: <laughs> okay. You just because beat I'm me by two over, years. <laughs> over
0: 80 years old. <laughs> yeah. I'm in my ninth decade of life.
1: Great. Yes. And, um, what, uh, what pitfalls did you have growing up? Did you have any pitfalls and things that you didn't understand? And-
0: no, you know, I, I had a great, absolutely great life, Myra, Jean, um, my father was an army officer. Um, my father had had a very, very rough life. His, his father uh, died in a railroad accident when he was one years old. His mother died in the uh, influenza epidemic of 1918. So by age two, he was an orphan raised until he was 10 by a wonderful, wonderful grandmother. Because I remember interviewing him one time and he said that the, the greatest time of his life was... Um, when he was able to be uh, raised by her up till age 10, then she died. So that was the saddest day of his life. And then um, his mother had had seven siblings. So he was raised by one of the sisters, uh, the aunt and um, the uh, uncle. And um, he was raised really in a very, um, ooh, I don't know how you would define it. A very, um, uh, let's just say poor very poor uh, the, the uncle was an eighth grade dropout and uh, dug water wells and so forth that was his living and my father never really had any um, assistance in in uh, education other than he went to school but there was no there were no books around the house and but he was very intelligent he was innately intelligent he had good genes as far as intelligence and uh, he ended up uh, being the uh co-editor of his high school uh, newspaper. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting a uh, an associate's degree at a uh, college over in Arlington, Texas, wherein mm-hmm. he um, became the battalion command sergeant major of a ROTC unit, Reserve Officer Training Corps, to prepare for an officer commission, which he eventually got. He never finished college, but he got the officer commission, was called on active duty in World War II in 1942. So that takes him up to there. My mother was has a very interesting heritage. Now, my father's heritage goes back to the uh, Revolutionary War. Uh, two of our ancestors, uh, my ancestors, uh, were soldiers in the Revolutionary War, and I'm very proud of that. One of them fought in a battle down in South Carolina, and was at, one was at the Battle of Yorktown, which was, the, of course, the final battle of the war. Mm-hmm. Uh, mother, uh, mother was a uh, apparently the uh, daughter of a very prosperous German businessman in Matamoros, Mexico. Uh, in the 1800s, the Germans were very commercially oriented all around the world and they had businesses and they moved people in with money, whatever the case may be. He was either a banker or a businessman in the early 1900s in Matamoros, Mexico. So she had a good um, good uh, upbringing that was prosperous. And then there was a, uh, a man that, that left m- uh, Spain, Astoria, Spain, which is the central province right in the middle of the north of Spain, he and his brother came for economic reasons to Veracruz, Mexico, then to the United States, and uh, he came and somehow or other he managed to marry uh, this German, and uh, eventually there was a, um, a daughter, my mother, born, and then a she had a brother, so um, he left Never, they never divorced formally, but he left the family, deserted them, lived in the same town, right. but deserted yeah. them, and so she had a really harsh upbringing. Her mother and the aunt that was unmarried that lived with them had to teach piano lessons uh, to make a living, and they lived mm-hmm. a very abstemious life. So both my parents were brought up very frugally and abstemiously, and uh, but they were brought up with character. They were both brought up going to church all the time. Mother was brought up Roman Catholic. Dad was brought out. Brought up Southern Baptists, so in their own way they were brought up with a great amount of faith, and that mm-hmm. had a lot to do with my achievement yeah. of my faith walk. Yeah. So mm-hmm. um, I really had no issues. My dad was a professional army officer, great guy, Counterintelligence Corps, United States Military uh, Army, and mm-hmm. uh, my mother didn't, never worked. And mm-hmm. uh, meals were always ready when I got home, and if I had friends come over, friends came over. Dad was always. Never talked about his work because he was in intelligence work. But um, I always knew that they were strong. I always knew that mm-hmm. they were yes. behind me, took care mm-hmm. of
1: me. I had no real problems. Great. Yeah. So why did you decide to go into the military? At what age were you? Yeah.
0: Well, um, I guess I was um, eight eight years old, as I recall. You know, a lot of... Um, Army kids. We call, we, we're called brats. Right, um, I'm,
1: I'm
0: not um, At age eight, I was collecting patches, more Army patches, and I found one that I didn't recognize. And so I showed it to my father. And um, he said, uh, I asked him what it was. He said, that's the patch that they were at West Point. I said, what's that, Dad? He said, that's the military academy up north of New York City. And they have been training officers there. You know, I don't know what he told me about it, but just they trained officers there. You go to college for four years, become an officer. Well, I had a a goal very early in life. I mean, I had a goal at age eight. So I had tunnel vision. All I was going to do was focus on uh, keeping myself straight, studying hard, preparing myself to go to West Point. Because I just had that tunnel vision. That's all I wanted to do. So dad would point out different officers on the post that were West Point graduates. And I, they were all sharp guys, you know. And um, I said, well, you know, I'm, that's what I'm going to focus on. So I never got in any kind of trouble. Uh, I just studied hard. Uh, you know, I, I did my homework. I, I played. I played sports and different things. But the important thing is that I uh, I focused on studies and I, mm-hmm. I uh, read a lot uh, as a young elementary student, I read a lot of patriotic books, stories of patriots of America, mm-hmm. from the founding fathers and mothers, and the stories about the people that made America great, the right. traditional values that were built up in America. And uh, I just I just studied and studied and studied. Uh, in eighth grade, my um, we were in Alexandria, Virginia, and my teacher uh, was a very wise person. And she told dad, she said, you know, Alan needs to really be pressed academically to prepare for West Point. He needs to go to a private school. So um, in, in Washington, D.C., about mm-hmm. six blocks north of the Capitol building mm-hmm. was a, a Jesuit high school. Um, it's called Gonzaga and uh, all boys. And uh, I got admitted for, uh, for ninth grade. I was there ninth and tenth grade. And then by the time tenth grade came along, my father was due for an overseas assignment. And uh, many, many bases overseas in Japan, Germany, different places had very, very small high schools. I mean, I remember when I was in elementary school in Sendai, Japan, uh, as first, second and third grade, uh, the high school graduated four people. Okay, so there was not a very broad based uh, academic opportunity to prepare for college there. So uh, the the headmaster, Catholic, a Jesuit father, headmaster at the 10th grade, I was a Protestant. Um, suggested to Dad that it, rather than take me overseas, I better get into a boarding school. So uh, I got myself and a. Dad and I worked on it. You know what I had to do, and I was making good grades. So I got an, admitted for eleventh grade to a prep school that was founded in 1783 in New Hampshire mm-hmm. called Phillips Exeter Academy. It's one of the oldest prep schools in the country, and uh, it. I was a scholarship student there, and they obviously had a lot of very um well off kids from very well off families prosperous families um very right. successful yeah. fathers and so forth right. and so i uh, ended up there and halfway through 11th grade um i I'd applied to congressmen and senators i'd walk down to the capitol building and give my grades uh to mm-hmm. the officers there and i was called up on christmas eve my 11th grade year Myra Jean, and uh offered a a, a, a principal nomination to West Point, which meant that if I passed the test, I was admitted. And so the Congressman, I said, Congressman, I don't need the nomination till next year. He says, I'm a lame duck Congressman. I've lost my primary. He was from Little Rock, Arkansas, and uh, he lost his primary in, in the summer of 58. So he said, why don't you go ahead and take the test? And if you get admitted, decide whether you want to go in or not. And if you don't get admitted, you got to practice. Well, that made sense. I said, okay, I'll accept the nomination. So I accepted the nomination. He was out of office in 10 days. And uh, so I started taking all the tests that you got to do. I went down to Boston Army Base to uh, do the physical ability test, the, uh, um, mm-hmm. the SAT and uh, mm-hmm. psychological tests, They had a psychiatrist interview you and so forth, make sure you were stable, you know. So anyway, I passed May 1st, 11th grade. I get admitted to West Point in my regime. I mean, <laughs> okay. I had enough credit hours to take summer school. I had four math four math years. So I had all the credit hours I needed. So I was admitted to West Point after 11th grade. So I joke in my speeches that I'm a high school dropout that made it into college. So uh, I'm the youngest man in my class of 735 cadets, but I had achieved my goal since I was eight years old. Bingo. I graduated from West Point four years later. I made it. My goal for my, life, my
1: childhood goal was satisfied Right. So, so what did they do with you when you graduated? <laughs> well, we what? all got
0: commissions. I mean, West Point, right. you know, commissions you. If you graduate, you have to serve in the military. We had a four-year commitment uh, right. it was the Vietnam War. Which, in which branch was that? Army. West Point Army. was only Army. Okay. Well, Army. back then you could go in Air Force or Marines, uh, but today you had to have been an enlisted person on active duty in one of those other right. branches able to go otherwise you're army officer period. So we graduated, you know, maybe twenty or thirty Air Force and then maybe three or four Marines and then maybe four hundred and seventy army officers that went on active duty. The majority of us went to Vietnam, served in the war.
1: So right out from your graduation you were in Vietnam?
0: No, 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 no. No. After we gra- no, they don't they don't send you directly to war. Uh, they always let you, the class of 1950 at West Point, they sent them directly to war. Uh, two months after graduation, they suffered horrendous casualties. So they made a new ruling that West Point graduates need need mm-hmm. to serve in a peacetime uh, assignment for at least a mm-hmm. year before they send you into combat. So uh, I went to Fort Hood, Texas, my first assignment. An engineer battalion, and I was there a couple of years, and then I was asked by the the commanding general of the division to be an aide de camp, uh, which means you know, I was you know I helped him with his schedule and different things, and uh, I was there for the third year of my service, and then my my first wife uh, wanted me to resign, which uh, meant that I would just uh, really broken my heart. All I wanted to do was be a professional army officer, uh, but. I realized that, uh, I mean, I had to choice either my career or my marriage. I chose my marriage, but I also could not forfeit, uh, forfeit the, the, what I trained I trained for. We were in the middle of the war. All my classmates were going to Vietnam. Some of them had been killed in action already. And there was no way that I could avoid the war. Uh, I transferred from Army Corps of Engineers to military intelligence. And uh, military intelligence... Uh, I thought maybe it would be a chance to get in the um, embassy work in intelligence operations and maybe not go to the war. But um, I realized that um, I couldn't evade the war. A general wanted me to go to Korea as his aide, and I would have avoided the war, come back, have my fifth year of service, and then resigned. Um, So I volunteered uh, for Vietnam without telling her my regime, and that was a big, big error. Now, had my had my personal faith been stronger then, and knowing what I know now and knew decades ago, I would have prayed with her and uh, told her that this is what I'm agonizing over about going to, to the war. And she would have said no, of course, no, no spouse would ever say, yeah, go on, go to the war, you know. So um, she would have said no. But I would have said, um, I've told you. But I would have prevailed in my decision that I had to serve my country uh, before I left the military. I had my personal honor was at stake. And my duty honor country motto of West Point, which is what we live by, would not be satisfied if I shirked going to the war. As long as I was going to be getting out and doing what she wanted me to do. So I had to go to the war. So I volunteered. And if you volunteer for the war, you're going to go to the war. I went to the war uh, in the fourth during the fourth year of my service, summer of 1966, I was assigned to a military intelligence detachment in a coastal town called Nha Trang in Vietnam. And she stayed with her parents back here in Dallas. Dallas. Okay.
1: So how long were you there in uh,
0: Vietnam? Because ten my husband... Ten and, hmm? ten and a half months. We had a 12-month and tour. Ten. I was wounded in, in the middle of my 10th month of service in Vietnam.
1: Mm. Okay. Um, you know the Army and Air Force Exchange, the, the retail of the military uh, that supply uh, uh, troops with um, their uh, Army and Air Force Exchange. My husband was in that. Oh, for- the
0: Exchange Service. You're talking about the Exchange Service, the post mm-hmm. exchanges. Is that what you're
1: talking about? Right. Okay, what about that? What
0: yeah, about that? Yeah, he
1: he was in Vietnam.
0: H- who was in
1: '71? <clears throat> who who so, are you talking as, about? As a retail person.
0: Okay, my husband. You're like your father.
1: My husband. Your father. No, my husband.
0: Oh, your husband. I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't understand. Okay. I missed that. Your <clears throat> husband was. Yeah, yeah I just Joe
1: wondered him. if you crossed <clears throat> in time. Oh, no. at,
0: Right. no no my, I left I was in civilian life uh, by 1971. I, I'd already gotten out of gr- come back I was wounded in the hospital 15 months you know gotten my uh, I'm a double leg amputee from the war from mortar wounds so I went through my rehabilitation for 15 months and went to graduate school so by 70 uh, I was in uh, working for a bank in Dallas so by by
1: 70. Uh, in Dallas, we were in Dallas. Um, well, let me take that back. We were in San Antonio. We didn't go to Dallas until 80, 92, (laughs) a lot of years and and four moves. Okay.
0: Yeah. Right. Right.
1: So, um, how did you uh, process that? uh, You were saying about your <clears throat> being, having that severe wound.
0: How did I process that physically, You're right. emotionally, or spiritually? Oh. All three.
1: You're right. <laughs> right.
0: Well, um, I was in the middle of an attack, a mortar <clears throat> attack in my camp. I was in army special forces, which is the green berets. And, um, we were in the middle special forces camps in Vietnam. About one hundred ten of them were kind of like an old fort. If so they had the middle area where the special forces were, then you had your protectors, the uh, mercenaries, were on the outer perimeter with the uh, South Vietnamese special forces and in an area we what we call mountain yards. They were the mountain people that were trained by the South Vietnamese and. They, they protected the outer perimeter of the camps. And they lived with their families. They lived in dugouts. I mean, they lived down in the ground in like a, a dugout. That's where they lived with their families. And uh, there was an attack. They came up and with their rifles and, you know, the parapets uh, to protect the camp during a ground attack. Uh, our mortar attack started. We expected perhaps during the course of the attack that there would be a ground attack. Um, so I'm... An, I was an intelligence officer undercover. I had a false name. My name was Alan Copley rather than Alan Clark. So I had a false ID. I had been um, started wearing infantry brass, infantry uh, assignment as an officer false name undercover, um, trying to get agents to be um, recruited to go back into the old villages they'd left up near the border toward Cambodia to find out where the communists were coming across the border from the Ho Chi Minh Trail. And um, by the fact that a a heavily armed North Vietnamese regular army battalion had come into our area, um, my operation for collecting intelligence was shut down. So my commanding officer, sent a radio message to me a couple days before. He said, your operation shut down. I'm going to pick you up at 9.30 a.m. I'm coming up with a plane from 280 miles away, Saigon. I'm coming up to uh, pick you up and be on the airstrip at um, 9.30. Uh, Saturday morning, June 17, 1967. So uh, every two hours in a Special Forces camp, an American is uh, awake and on duty. So I had the four to six shift. So when, uh, my shift would have been over at six, I would have packed my duffel bag, gone and have breakfast, gotten out on the airstrip to be picked up. I was going to be safe. I was basically out of the war from the danger area. Um, but at four thirty during my shift, the communist battalion, which had moved through the jungle very quickly had set up mortar, uh, positions, uh, mm. The river near our camp and, he- and started a heavy mortar and rocket barrage. And I'm in the middle there, so I'm grabbing men literally and, and sending them to a mortar pit to um, be loaders for the guns, our mortars to get mortar fire on the enemy positions across the river. And um, I also yelled to them to put flares in the air because I was afraid we we're going to get an enemy. Uh, ground attack on one of the sides of the camp so in the middle of doing those things which i was doing a mortar round hit to my left rear and uh, took off as it turns out took my left leg off traumatically gone immediately to my left rear no leg below the left knee uh, a, a combat medic green beret combat medic came and um, stopped the blood flow um and uh, put a clamp on me or something Took me downstairs. I was awake the whole time. I felt no pain, my regime. No pain. The Lord did not allow me to have any pain. Hadn't have any morphine yet, but the Lord would not. He put me into shock or something. No pain. Get down into the bunker. Second green beret. Goes out and gets some uh, morphine and plasma um, to replace the blood I'd lost. And um, about I guess maybe two hours later, it's hard to tell. Uh, We'd had 25 Americans in the camp, two killed. One was sitting right next to me in the bunker where I was next to my cot, uh, where I was on my stomach. I didn't know what had happened to me. And uh, I'm down there and I say to the medic, uh, I say, um, uh, treat the other men first. I said, Mm -hmm. don't treat me, take care of them. And he said, I'm going to take care of you, Captain. Don't worry about it. And the other thing that I remember I said, and we had a response on, was I said, uh, be sure to tell my wife what happened because I'm going to die. He said, you're not going to die. He said, I'm going to take care of you. And he wrote me back one time. He said, there was somebody else in that bunker that night. Mm-hmm. We know it's the Lord to protect me and save me. So I wouldn't die. And, um, later on, we crossed paths. We still are in touch. And, uh, several years later, I he told me, he says, you know, uh, captain, you were my first combat casualty. He said, um, I, um, um, I had just gotten in country a week before from training in, in the States. I said, like, well, gosh, if I'd known you were such a new combat medic, I'd ask for a second opinion, you know, on what happened to me. But anyway, uh, he saved my life and I got morphine pretty quick. And then, uh, I passed out to uh, immediately on a, on the helicopter, went into the hospital, um, and then woke up Sunday night and then, um took a week to get me back to Brook Army Hospital in San Antonio, the big army hospital there. And um, three days later, they came up and my right leg was broken in five places. So uh, the doctor said, Captain, um, we have a choice to make. You have to make a choice. He said, you're going to have to obviously wear artificial leg on your left leg. Um, but your right leg, we're going to do our best to to." heal you, but it's broken in five places. It's almost impossible to fix that. You're going to be walking as like real gimp, worse, worse with your right leg than your artificial leg. <coughs> so I accepted the reality. And I said, okay, take it off. So here I am uh, three days after, let me see, one week after my 25th birthday, I was wounded three days before my 25th birthday. Seven days after my 25th birthday, I am a double leg amputee facing Fear, anger, you know, anger at God and fear. What am I going to do with my life? It was not a good trade in my life. So I had to work through that in the next 15 months. And uh, I had a, a, a break, a psychiatric break with post-traumatic stress disorder. Um, I cracked after four days without sleep. Went to a closed psychiatric ward and, uh, mm-hmm. for four weeks. Mm-hmm. and went taking pills and psychiatrist for several years after that.
1: So when you adjusted, you got your uh, artificial limbs and yes. you adjusted. And then um, where did you go from there? Did well, You were still I in the to, military?
0: Well, uh, no. Once I was, I, I would not be in the military anymore. I mean, so uh, mm-hmm. September of 68, after five years of service, after graduating from West Point, I was retar- retired from active duty as an Army officer. Uh, with 100% physical disability, uh, medical, uh, disability from wounds. So I went into the veterans affairs system for future medical care. Um, uh, when you get, uh, wounded or, or injured in the, in the military, you have, uh, college free. So I had uh, college free for two years at SMU in Dallas, right? Studied and got an MBA in finance and investments. And I went to work for, um, uh, Ross Perot's company for a very short period of time in Dallas. He was, you know, big, well-known gentleman back at that time, died a couple of years ago and had a wonderful job. But I broke down again with um, the pressures that I put myself under in an assignment in New York city. So I had to go in the hospital again. I had to, I wouldn't be able to work for him. So I was unemployed for a few months and then uh, started working in a bank for eight years Uh, During that time frame, I got involved with a church uh, here in Dallas and um, got in a a, a couples group, a family group, a cell group, they called it. And I started learning my Bible, reading my Bible, studying my Bible, uh, getting my faith act together. And I remember specifically my Regina in a service one day. the pastor began to talk about the great eternal struggle of all time, which is good versus evil and God versus the devil. And there was an American flag up there uh, at the front of the church. And I looked up that flag and I started tearing in the service. And the thought that came to my mind was here I am dedicated to serve my country as an army officer, Patriot almost died for my country serving that flag. I said, I didn't know about the higher power Uh, God and uh, Jesus and the Holy Spirit, which I eventually grasped the total meaning of as the Trinity, uh, I I was not uh, showing my allegiance to a higher power and level than just that American flag in the United States of America. So I teared, uh, realizing that day that I'd been out of the the really big fight of life, which is the spiritual life, rather than just the, 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 the physical life of being a soldier.
1: Right. Mm-hmm. Right. When, <clears throat> when Jesus said we must be born again, he said the flesh gives birth to flesh, but <clears throat> it is the spirit that gives birth to spirit. And I don't know why <clears throat> I uh, didn't drink liquids today. Thank you. And it it is all our life. Uh, Comes from um, that relationship that Jesus <clears throat> gives us to have the Holy Spirit in us, and from <clears throat> from there we have life.
0: That, that's that's the essence of life. That's all that really matters. Once you get that, you got the biggest obstacle in life satisfied. Right.
1: So. <clears throat> You said your first wife, so did, did your first wife pass away?
0: No. You um, she, uh, she had really been damaged severely emotionally by having to um, put up with an amputee husband. And uh, I was not the easiest guy to live with by any stretch. It's not a one-way street. Uh, I was very hard to live with. Um, those years were very tough on me. I had... Uh, uh, all my goals in life were not satisfied. I was angry. I was sad. I was mad at God. Those initial years, I was hurting. It was hard for me to do things physically. She had to do a lot of physical things around the house. Um, very soon after uh, I got a job in a bank, uh, I began involved in politics. So I took a lot of time away. Uh, I went on the governor's staff in Texas 1978, 1978, uh, 10 years after I'd gotten out of the military. And, um, spent a lot of time and we, I moved my family to Austin she really didn't want to move from Dallas she was very satisfied in Dallas had a lot of friends here gone to all the way through school Southern Methodist University so um, and then then after the governor's staff I had a very hard time uh, financially, uh, in the real estate business in the eighties. And then I got an appointment to go to president George HW Bush's administration at the national veterans affairs department as a senior political appointee. So I had uh, four wonderful years there she never went. So we became estranged and, um, It was really more of her volition than mine to desire divorce and a separation. So after 30 years, we divorced. Then I was a bachelor for nine years. And then I remarried 19 years ago to a a very fine, fine woman um, that is a very devout Christian. She is spirit-filled. She knows the Lord. And she's been a great example to me as a husband. uh, And we have a great prayer life. I mean, 30 minutes before this program, we prayed that I would uh, say and do and be uh, what I should be as a witness to the Lord's love in my life.
1: Right. Right. So now I'm 78. So um, you said you're in the 80s, right?
0: 80. I am 80.
1: 80. Right. So since did you retire from what the banking? Well, and then you were in uh, governor's.
0: I was working, I worked eight years at Republic National Bank in Dallas. And I was very involved in politics. And when Governor Bill Clements became the first Republican governor in the state of Texas since Reconstruction in 1978 election, Mm -hmm. uh, he asked me to come to Austin and run his office. I was a Uh, Special assistant administration. I had the first office outside the governor. And so I tell, uh, I do a lot of public speaking, and I tell people 10 years after I left the United States military, and 10 years after I was in a closed psychiatric ward for 14 weeks, just totally devastated emotionally and trying to learn to walk on artificial aids. 10 years later, by the grace of God and by the direction Mm -hmm. of the Lord, because I'd gotten my faith act together and Healed from post-traumatic stress, didn't take any more pills, didn't see a psychiatrist anymore. I'm in an office 10 feet from the governor's office in Austin, Texas, Capitol. Ten years later.
1: Right. So when uh, Clements, what was the next uh, governor? was, Perry... he was beaten.
0: Uh, 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 Bill Clements was beaten in 82 by Mark White. Um, okay. And then Clements came back in 86 for a second term.
1: Okay, so at what point then did you continue like in this, um, working out in the poli- uh, politics?
0: Well, I stayed involved in politics all along. Um, I in 1982, I ran for state treasurer of Texas when the governor Clements ran his second for a second term and, and lost. Uh, I was on the ballot with him for state treasurer, and I lost the race for state treasurer, so someone else. Uh, won the race and I was in business in Austin. Um, I was an individual entrepreneur in the real estate investment business. And so I was in that. And then, um, when pres, I, I worked on President Bush's campaign, George H.W. Bush. So when he was elected in 88, uh, I was asked to be a political appointee on his staff in Washington, D.C. at Department of Veterans Affairs. So I went there and, and, and left Austin. Okay and my my first wife stayed there as a realtor and never moved with me one of my daughters moved with me and lived with me and uh became a uh, finished college and became a white house intern and um the other daughter came up for a while and stayed there for a while but um uh, so they both graduated from college up in the northeast around washington dc
1: right so now you're you're still working in the Veterans Administration?
0: Oh no oh, no, no no! I retired at age 62, 18 years ago, um, two thousand five, uh, from the Department of Veterans Affairs. So I've been retired. I've written three books. I've written my autobiography called Wounded Soldier Healing Warrior. I've written a history of nineteen people that served in Vietnam uh, called Valor in Vietnam, and I've written a very politically um, uh, connected book about uh, politics and about history and about warfare and about who gets us into wars and uh, puts our lives at risk in warfare called soldiers, blood and bloodied money. All three of my books are on Amazon.
1: I've been very busy
0: and I've done a lot of public speaking the last few years. Testimony of faith go to churches, give my testimony of faith, patriotic talks, historical talks. I've been busy.
1: Great. So you didn't, uh, you haven't gotten bored.
0: Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. I've loved life. I have a wonderful wife and I've had a lot of wonderful friends involved in a lot of uh, patriotic and veteran organizations and, um, mm-hmm. Lynn and I know the Lord. We love the Lord. The Lord has brought us together supernaturally for our marriage after nine years of my being single and her Mm -hmm. being nine years of a widow uh, for her marriage. And I knew her husband, so it's really special.
1: Right. So are you still in, well, you're in Plano now.
0: Yes, we live in Plano. Mm -hmm.
1: Right. So you were in D.C. during George Bush's... uh, yeah.
0: I haven't been in DC for 30 years. I left DC in 1993, came back to Texas. Okay. I worked at the veterans hospital in Dallas for nine years. Okay.
1: All right. So after coming back to, to Dallas, you worked in the uh, veterans here in Dallas.
0: The hospital.
1: The hospital. The
0: veterans hospital, correct.
1: Right. So you want to um, you want to share a message to to vets to, to what to vets?
0: OK, well, I have uh, personally mentored hundreds of veterans, uh, either in conversation at the hospital, emails, uh, telephone conversations, coffees. Uh, I've talked to uh, spouses. I've talked to girlfriends, talked to parents. Talk to veterans directly. And what I try to do uh, with a veteran that has a post-traumatic stress issue, um, and um, I know that many of us evidence what's called the disorder. They, they try to change the names and dampen the name down and so forth. But it, it's an issue of some kind for something that bothered them in the war. And you can have post-traumatic stress as a firefighter, as a, a law enforcement person, as right. a spouse in a family or children. Different things mm-hmm. bother you. So, um, what I try to do is go back to the heart of the issue of what's really bothering them and try to analyze that situation and try to get them to understand and recognize uh, what the emotional and physical issues related to that and was there a mistake? was there an error was there a sin? I try to determine if their issues relate to being sinful. If they're they're sinful, Mm -hmm. I ask them to confess their sins. If -hmm. they can't forgive somebody that made a mistake in war, maybe their commanding officer uh, did something that made their best buddy killed in combat, they need to forgive them. You know, the two major things for us to receive um, um, protection from the Lord is confess all sins and um, forgive all others. And plus ourselves for stupids.
1: Right, right. Okay, so receiving, <clears throat> receiving from the Lord His forgiveness for us, then extending <clears throat> that forgiveness to others.
0: Correct. Those are the major two things I, that I that I talk to veterans about.
1: <clears throat> In fact, right, the two things. The th- two things every person, <laughs> every person needs to uh, to. <clears throat> To possess, you know, to possess God's forgiveness, and us it, right.
0: it also keeps us clean, Myra, from spiritual warfare and attacks by the evil one and the demonic spirits. If we don't have our the, the doorways to evil closed off, uh, then the the devil can assign demon, demonic spirits to work us over spiritually. I also learned that about thirty years ago, so I apply that with my veterans that I that I mentor. Uh, to understand spiritual warfare.
1: Okay. So <clears throat> now you're in, uh, like a, <clears throat> a pastor. <clears throat> I don't know.
0: I have a, a lay pastor. ministry, if that's what you're getting at. All
1: right.
0: What I? Yeah, I have a lay ministry <laughs> called Combat Faith. And um, it, it is combatfaith.com is my lay ministry website, Combat Faith. And I do a, a blog called combatfaith.blogspot.com And I've got about 117 messages on there about faith. Um, and so I, I, I go to a lot of talks for churches, uh, veteran groups, patriotic groups, uh, continue to counsel people all the time. I had a podcast the other day and I ended up counseling, mentoring the uh, the podcaster before the interview.
1: Right, mentoring. Right. right. Um, today, the, the the issues, there's not, well, there is war. Mm. those in the military now, um, they're not so much like in Iraq, I guess there's special forces still involved in Iraq. Well, like,
0: and- like we just evacuated the embassy staff out of Sudan, uh, army special forces and Navy SEALs were responsible for that evacuation in, in Sudan just 48 hours ago, my regime. Okay. So obviously we're involved. Uh, we have our forces all over the world. Uh, we're not in active combat situations like we were in Afghanistan or Iraq, but uh, we're we're on duty all over the world. Uh, you know, there's a major confrontation that's possible in the Pacific between the Russian and the Chinese fleets and the American fleets over there and uh, worrying mm-hmm. about what's going to happen to Taiwan. And uh, obviously we're, we don't have troops on the ground in Ukraine, except maybe some advisors um, showing people how to run the weapons systems that we're donating. Uh, but we don't have any troops um, on the ground, to my knowledge, in Ukraine. But they're they're stationed in Poland.
1: Right. And, and what about in the military now, all the, uh, the pressure from uh, woke? teaching and uh, transgender teaching and the, the military is how, what you would say? Messed up? How messed up is the training becoming for military?
0: I don't have any direct experience, but, but um, the, the woke culture that's being um, experienced amongst our military is a, is a, a reflection of the entire political issue that's hitting the country and is debilitating right. to the country. And right. um, any, any, whether it's school, college, uh, family life, um, a business, whatever the case may be, if these different political issues of which there's major contention and conflict in the country, uh, there's going to be an impact obviously in the military also. And the military has got to focus on, being prepared to keep the peace and to fight Mm -hmm. the wars and to win and beat the enemy, not to worry about fighting each other. That's, Mm -hmm. that's the thing that bothers people like me that have been in the Mm -hmm. military. Uh, we're taking, taking our eyes off the target, which is being prepared to defend the country.
1: Right. Right. So the military in essence, like you have, you have uh, the executive branch, the judicial, the legislative, but the military is it's a totally separate union, but its purpose is to protect our country and its citizens. And, like um, you were saying.
0: Well, we've stretched the purpose for the military uh, through the decades, and that's part of what. My third book, "Soldier's Blood and Bloodied Money," is about is uh, endless wars and getting us into wars we may not necessarily have a national purpose to be served, mm-hmm. and uh, and people making money, industrialists, um, bankers, uh, politicians by uh, having more power because of wars and so forth, and putting young people like me in harm's way uh, in these wars, and not mm-hmm. giving us the um direction and the uh, the assistance that we really need to win the war but what's the purpose of our being in a war we need to uh, know why were we in vietnam why were we in afghanistan why were we in iraq analyze that as citizens of the united states to get to mm-hmm. our congressmen when we're about to go to war and let them know how we feel about what's going on and, and put our uh, put our uh, positions uh, in our votes
1: mm-hmm. right Right. And for um, all the more so for us to be prepared if there should be, um, you know, China seems to be a more antagonistic uh, adversary than uh, Russia ever even was or is. Uh,
0: well, there's two different two different uh, adversaries there. China um, became communistic in 1949 when um, Mao Zedong, uh, in his long march as communists, uh, they were aided and abetted by the Russian communists, USSR communists, uh, beginning in the 20s and the 30s. They eventually kicked out the nationalists who had to go to uh, Taiwan, and so the the origination of the Taiwan being populated, was from the nationalist troops coming from China. So Mao Zedong uh, wrote a 100 year plan in um, 1949 to be the preeminent superpower in the world in 100 years. And so that's what their purpose is right now. And that is to be uh, the the strongest military superpower and especially economic superpower. And as many... uh, companies as the United States uh, depends upon to have a lot of their profits and revenues out of China and to have uh, cheap labor there and to sell stuff to the United States at cheaper prices, take American jobs away. Uh, this is all part of their effort to take us down economically and financially mm-hmm. and much less the, uh, the <clears throat> Wuhan virus that, that uh, was perpetrated on the world.
1: Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Yeah, that as far as as a control issue, uh, uh, you know, in their attempts to take down America. Yes. So what do you think we need to know? What do you think we need to know?
0: Well, we need to be sure we understand economically uh, what we need to do to cut down the economic power. Of China, And that is um, there were a certain amount of tariffs that were raised in the past few years that have apparently been canceled. And apparently we got some money from China on these different tariffs. And we're not getting money from China anymore relative to that. We got money from China for our farmers for different things that, that had happened. The Chinese are buying uh, land and companies all over America. Now we need to always be aware that any totalitarian government like Russia or China is going to be uh, intent on getting intelligence out of the United States. And by having these companies owned by the Chinese all over the country uh, as a former intelligence officer, I would be very concerned about Chinese agents being placed in these different companies uh, around the country that they bought. And also the way they're getting an awful lot of students in this country uh, and those students get very good educations mm-hmm. and they get into uh, corporations and uh, they can be a very insidious operation uh, to obtain intelligence in the United States and get into the military industrial complex companies and, and get um, uh, a lot of their weapons, a lot of their planes and their um, different warfare um, planes and ships, etc., ha- have been developed because they stole the plans from us. We never stopped mm-hmm. them.
1: Right. Okay. So how does anybody access your, your three books uh, under, where were they? They're all on you?
0: Amazon, Myra Jean. They're all on Amazon. The first one, Wounded Soldier, Healing Warrior, just a few of them left. That's my autobiography. It's basically out of print. Uh, the second and third ones are both uh, still in print. You can buy them on Amazon. You know, Valorant Vietnam and Soldier's Blood, Bloody Money.
1: Right. So they find just under, do. under your name. And then they oh,
0: would. Yeah. My involved. name is author and all three are available there. Yeah. I, I, am not, I'm not trying to sell books to make money because I'll never make well, all the money put into those books. In, to but inform, story, educate,
1: wake people up and also yes, well, know what, well, we what we need, story, what do we need to do.
0: Well, my, my story in my autobiography talks about what happened to me and how I change in, in my faith walk. Okay, and the number Mm -hmm. two book is explaining the stories of our people that went to war and uh, how wonderful they were, good they were, patriots they were. An Army nurse is a story in there, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, Army, uh, Army, Navy, Air Force and Marines stories, heroic stories. And then my third book is a story about how the elitists. Uh, Make money and always have through history to uh, start wars to make money. And we're the ones on the front lines as the soldiers and sailors and airmen and Marines. We're the ones that suffer the consequences if it's not a just war.
1: Right. Okay. So I guess we'll, I really appreciate your also helping some people realize the danger that's out there, um, you know, to be alert. Yes. So, though we'll have to say uh, that peace, I want to say it, that peace is possible. First, it's through having a relationship with uh, Jesus, the Christ, um, to know the living God, to receive from Him what we need, to depend on Him. Right. That we can have peace in the midst of conflict. We, we can uh, have uh, understanding, knowledge, and not be, like you were saying, a spiritual war. You know, not being susceptible to.
0: Well, we need to be armed for spiritual warfare also. And right. we, we get armed, but understand spiritual warfare and how God verse. Versus the devil, but the tools that we need to combat the enemy and uh, the, the pathways of evil to be closed off within us, so that we're straight.
1: Okay. And you covered that. You covered that on your third book.
0: Um, to a degree, to a degree, I talk about the coming of the Christ. That uh, right. the, te- the 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 um, the background was laid for the coming of the Christ Jesus. Um, in the Old Testament to lead up to the New Testament to show us how to live uh, a story and an example and then um, I talk about spiritual warfare and about the people that um, are, are the bad people in the world
1: yes right okay all, all right everybody it's Alan Clark on Amazon and what do you call the third one um, Soldier's Blood
0: Soldier's Blood And blood money. So it's it's, we give up our blood so that people can make money off our blood.
1: Okay. All right. The truth spoken in love. And now you have somebody who's been through um, 60 years of uh, gaining uh, wisdom, uh, knowing what's going on in our world. And how to uh, be, uh, we're also lay ministers, but also to be soldiers. We used to say, uh, I'm in the Lord's army, right? Mm -hmm. We need to be his soldiers and fight the good fight of faith.
0: That's right, Myra. That's the only thing that matters. You know, the ultimate purpose is to... To live our life, the remainder of our life in heaven, and to be prepared for that. The only way you can make sure you do that is to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and have him to know that he is the one that sacrificed on the cross for the redemption of all our sins. But we need to also continue to confess those sins day to day.
1: Right. uh, When we confess a sin, the Lord forgives and cleanses us from the unrighteousness. Yeah. Okay. Hope to see you again. Well, thank, thank you, you so Margaret.
0: much. Pleasure to be with you. And thank you for the opportunity to have the conversation with you and your audience. Okay. Good,
1: good see, night. See you for sure. <laughs>
0: okay. Bye-bye. This has been the truth spoken in love with your host, Myra Jean, the truth versus the deception. Tune in each week for the answers on Myra Jean's,
1: the truth spoken in love.